Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Britt Skolovi, Chief Growth Officer at Kinzu. Thanks for taking the time to join me today, Britt. Thanks for having me, Charlie. So excited to be here. Likewise, it's, this has been a long time coming. And so I want to start at the beginning. That's what I usually do with, with guests on, on the show here is I want to go back to you and I used to work together. And when I first started working with you, I found that you had such a unique perspective because of your background in both product and marketing. And so I think a good place to start for our conversation would be if you could kind of dive into how you got your start in your career, the background of your journey so far, and how you ended up at Kinzu. Absolutely. So to start, my first professional gig was with a process team at a large telecom company. This role was a fantastic introduction to analyzing data with a ton of rigor, but also learning the practices of creative collaboration. Uh, When a project came my way that included a technology component, I jumped at the opportunity to lead that initiative. While I had no experience with software before that, I was really excited by the opportunity. We were tasked with building a customer relationship management tool to enable an experimental pilot initiative that set out to transform the call center experience. And after working alongside a talented senior engineer to ship a product in a few weeks, I was hooked. I knew I wanted to go into product management. That was the beginning. That was the beginning. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, So soon thereafter, I joined the TV product team where I focused on video on demand. I was responsible for a content merchandising portfolio, which covered a complex set of initiatives that involved different stakeholders, such as content marketing, technology strategy, and customer support. Since then, I've held roles in e-commerce across digital marketing, product management, and delivery, working at retailers Kit and Ace and Aritzia, where we got our start. (laughs) Back in the good old days. (laughs) That's right. Time flies when you're having fun. Totally. So these roles have been amazing because it's given me a well-rounded perspective on the overall customer lifecycle, everything from discovery to purchase to support. Most recently, as you mentioned in the introduction, I joined a kid tech startup called Kinzu. I knew it would be an amazing opportunity to build something from the ground up, not only a product, but a community and a team. Uh, So currently, I oversee product and marketing to deliver against Kinzu's vision to be the most trusted brand for incorporating technology into our children's lives. And we're starting on this journey by bringing together kids, parents, and loved ones on a single private platform to share experiences that otherwise wouldn't exist. So... You've done a lot. <laughs> it's, 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 I feel like you've, you've touched so many different areas of, of business and, and specifically marketing and product. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, what I want to dig deeper into is this kind of the, this conversation around product management as well as product marketing. They're two separate things and they're, they're not this, they're not new, right? Like those right. words, product management and product marketing have, have been thrown around. Um, for, for a handful of years, probably much longer, but at least on my radar for a handful of years, um, they've, they've kind of, it feels like they've been blended together within the lines and the two kind of be, have become a little bit blurry. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? And, and why do you think that is? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, so before I state my answer on whether I agree or disagree <laughs> with the blurred lines, I'll take a step back. Um, and discuss a bit more about why I think there there's the blur, the blurry um, distinction. Yeah. So both product management and product marketing are fundamentally challenging to define because they sit at the intersection of other functions. The product manager typically exists in the middle of user experience, uh, technology, and business, whereas the product marketer can find themselves at the crossover of product, sales, and marketing. The collaborative nature of these roles can lead to a lack of clarity about des- desired outcomes. So in other words, it can be hard to answer the question, what is it that you actually do? Not very <laughs> office space <laughs> reference there. Yeah. Um, so even with limited knowledge of, our, of the day-to-day responsibilities of some of our colleagues, in other more defined roles, we can still understand what they're responsible for delivering. So for example, we know that finance manages money, we know engineers build the product, sales bring in business, support keeps customers happy, but product marketing and product management are a bit harder to pin down. Absolutely. So all that said, 
I actually believe that the blurry lines between product marketing and product management is a really good thing. It, to me, has started a critical conversation. Uh, for far too long, product marketing has been a misunderstood or underutilized function. Huh. So many companies would define product management and product marketing in terms of complementary opposites. And you've probably encountered at least one of these definitions. I know I had before I really started to unpack the two roles. Mm -hmm. uh, so you might hear things like product management puts the pro right product on the shelves and product marketing moves the product off the shelves or product management is inbound and product marketing is outbound. And before I go even further into that, I may as well pause here to give a definition of product marketing. And really there's no one perfect definition. Um, rather than making up my own, I'll reference a couple from other really smart people. Um, so one I just read in a blog post from the Product Marketing Alliance says that product marketing can be summed up as the driving force behind getting products to market and keeping them there. Mm -hmm. Another definition that comes from April Dunford, who I'll talk more about later because she's such an inspiration, she says that product marketers are able to deeply understand and therefore articulate what is different and better and remarkable about your offering for your target people. Yeah. So as a result, product marketers do have a big role to play in figuring out what to build, who it's for, who it's not for, what it's called, how to bring it to market, and more. And while the main job of a product manager is to deliver a product, the process that they build to accomplish this is arguably much more important. If it's a good process, it will be intertwined with product marketing right from the beginning. In summary, together, these two roles should represent a comprehensive, collaborative function in the company that oversees success over the entire life cycle of the product. Some people would find the blurriness as an issue, but mm -hmm. it's fascinating that you find it as like the core piece of it and like a necessary friction. Mm -hmm. Can you expand a little bit further on that? Like, do you agree with that? And, and if so, why? Yeah, I think um, sometimes with, with friction comes the best discovery. Mm -hmm. um, so in the last couple of years, we've seen at product management conferences, for, inst for instance, more product marketers come to the table um, and lead talks or conversations on the value of product marketing and what it brings to the table. Mm -hmm. um, and product management can, can truly be a role that's a bit overloaded, I would say, um, where you know, you're taking on so many different and diverse responsibilities. Um, and by really kind of carving out those unique skill sets, I think you can become kind of much stronger as, as a team. So the best kind of product management and product marketing duos I've really seen, you know, see, see each other as partners. Um, they see each other as critical to the company and, and one another's success. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that that's a model that we'll see expand throughout kind of more companies and uh, be an ongoing talking point from the, in the months and years to come. For sure. And, and you kind of alluded to my, a little bit of my next question here of this idea of, you said kind of the best pairs of product managers and product marketers. As I said in the intro, like you've worked extensively on both like the marketing mm -hmm. and the product sides and, and kind of going back to the title of this episode, applying a product mindset to marketing. Can you explain a little bit the, the skills that you've developed in product marketing or product management that have kind of gone back and forth across the fence to help you create better products or, or campaigns or whatever it is? That's a great question. I love this one. <laughs> um, so many people become product managers accidentally by doing the job before recognizing the responsibilities as a unique job function. Um, I, I teach a course on product management and actually just last night we were talking about how every product manager is, is a little bit of a, a snowflake, kind of unique in how they discovered the discipline and, and moved into the role. And while I had actually a fairly intentional move into product management, as I shared in my introduction, my exposure to product marketing was much more organic. I found myself diving into areas that felt outside of the direct realm of product management, specifically during my time in e-commerce. So for instance, I was working on a digital initiative to improve the online shopping experience for outerwear. And it really could be any product category, but in this case, it was outerwear. And while our team had a solid understanding of the opportunities within the digital product experience, we had a lot of unanswered questions about our customer and our market. For example, we were asking ourselves things such as, what's our core value proposition? 
Does this vary between customer segments? How does our positioning compare to our competitors? Do we want to maximize sales in a specific market? How do we effectively bring a new experience to a market and to our customers? Mm-hmm. And these may or may not be easy questions to answer, uh, especially on a deadline as but what we found was those answers were critical to defining the desired customer experience and ensuring the product delivered on those bigger overarching business goals. Huh. So that's, that's really interesting. So you, you got into it by kind of doing essentially like, yes, yeah. there was like the accident aspect of it, but like applying a specific example to it is fascinating. Cause I feel like, you know, some people would always ask like, how did you get into it? Like the fact that you're able to be like, Oh yeah, it was this thing. We were working on this thing. And like, that's when I decided to like intentionally go into it. I feel like is rare. Mm, I, I guess I, again, at the time, I don't even believe I recognized that as product marketing. It just mm-hmm. felt like a gap. Uh, it felt like a blocker for us to pursue um, the next steps in the product development life cycle. Yeah. And it, it, it felt like time for pause. It felt like time to ask those, those questions. Um, and once we started to get answers to them, you know, you, you saw all of the different parties who are working on the product, be it, um, you know, copy or the designers or the developers or the brand managers really rally behind what we were doing. And it felt like we were working from uh, more of a shared place. And for me, this, this highlighted that most products we love don't just fill a functional need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're not just servicing us in terms of a, you know, a problem and an outcome, mm-hmm. but they resonate emotionally. And we might describe an affinity for the brand based on feelings of excitement or confidence, or we feel understood as though the company really gets us or what we were looking for. Um, And in my experience, this great storytelling requires a few key elements. Um, One being market research, another being a deep understanding of the potential customer, and then actionable positioning. Mm -hmm. And I believe having this foundation as a company is just really critical to creating the connection between product and marketing. For sure. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, someone who you already referenced, April Dunford, and and I I read her book, obviously awesome on a recommendation from you. And I think Mm -hmm. that one of the biggest things, like as someone with my background, my background is marketing and I don't have the, the, the product background necessarily, but I think in, in working with you uh, in previous roles, as well as, uh, you know, listening to, I listened to April's book and then I, and then I I read it, um, is this idea of applying those, those product traits or skills to marketing, uh, how valuable that could be for marketers. And it was really around reframing things. Like it wasn't necessarily what I was doing that was fundamentally wrong in terms of like being solution oriented, um, which Mm -hmm. kind of dovetails well into our, our next question. It was more just like, kind of framing up the problem. And, and you've said this to me in the past before that the best product people are obsessed with the problem they're trying to solve, not the solution. That was a big unlock for me when you said that to me. I can't even remember when you said that to me. You must have said it to me a couple, <laughs> within the last, since we've known each other. Um, and, and that was a big unlock. And so when you say like the best product people are obsessed with the problem they're trying to solve, not the solution, what do you mean by that? And how does that apply to marketing? I'm really glad that resonated with you and I can't take credit for that statement (laughs) fully. Um, I mean, that, that is truly, I think a a mindset that a lot of product managers have and kind of a a rallying point uh, that we, you know, all all bond behind. Um, And it's certainly easier, easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll talk a bit more about what that means to me. Um, So product management really lies in this challenging space between data and instincts. So even if we have solid insights and a good idea, we recognize that it's really difficult to arrive at the perfect solution to a problem with a single at bat, if we want to use a baseball analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we typically need to take many swings before we hit a home run, if we even hit that home run at all. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we strive to learn. We really embrace that learning element with each iteration and we leave room for that patient experimentation. Um, Jeff Bezos actually speaks to this quite often. He, he's a good example, and I'll reference something he said in the Amazon letter to shareholders back in 2008. He said, a long-term orientation interacts well with customer obsession. If we can identify a customer need and we can 
further develop conviction that the need is meaningful and durable, our approach permits us to work patiently for multiple years to deliver a solution. So I really love that statement because for Jeff Bezos, you can see that to complement that love he has of the problem space and that deep corporate culture that Amazon has around customer obsession, um, you also need to have a long-term vision. You need to know where you're going. So Jeff Bezos knew from the very beginning that he wanted Amazon to be an everything store. But as we all know, Amazon didn't start there. It started with something much smaller, which was books. Yeah. And I think reflecting on marketing versus product, marketers are often very strong on vision because they protect the brand and they bring a brand to life. And it's so challenging to not jump to creative to a creative solution, especially mm-hmm. if you know where you want to go. But marketers can similarly embrace the problem space. So how this might feel is you may have an instinct and you really wish to pursue a path. You can see where you want to go. But the next stop in that path is where you bring in data in the form of validation. So you try to quantify, you know, is this, is this instinct based on some degree of fact? Can I, can I sell this to other people and get them excited about it as well? Mm-hmm. Then try it out, then listen to your customers and measure the outcome. So the mix of qualitative and quantitative data, mm-hmm. iterate upon it and repeat and just repeat that cycle over and over again, you know, until you're kind of have compounding wins and learnings. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things that, that has been a way of that I've kind of internalized and, and reframed in, in building our company or working with our clients is I've found that when I worked in, in marketing on the brand side, I was trained, you know, in business, like business 101 to be solution oriented, right? If you have a challenge, come to the table with a solution. You know, that's what like I'm using air quotes here. That's what a good employee does. Yeah. For and sure. And I think what's super interesting and why there was an unlock in my brain when you said like be obsessed with the problem, not the solution is because it actually forced me to ask harder questions to get more clear on what the problem actually is instead of just assuming, yeah, yeah, I know what the problem is, but here's the solution. And I mm-hmm. think that digging into the, the, the challenges or the pain points or how, whatever word you want to kind of label the things that you're trying to solve for um, is something that. I feel like marketers don't necessarily do enough of, and that's why I wanted to have you on here to talk about that because I think that it's similar. We can still get to the same, the same, a similar solution or the same solution in, in some cases, but it's about going through it in a way where uh, you are deeply understanding your customers and putting in, you know, that kind of structured framework, so to speak, to understand deeply what they're struggling with and how you can build something that will actually solve for their issue, which I think in right. the long term translates hopefully into business success. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay. You, said, you said that really, really well. And it's, it's, I do think it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a journey. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a mental practice. Um, just like it's a bit of a mental practice to come to the table with ideas, mm-hmm. right? Um, that is a valuable skill set, no doubt, but it is also a, a great practice to um, come to the table with a super clear understanding of, of the problem, what you're trying to solve for, um, and how you can truly help your customers. Yeah. And it, it's hard because it is like unlearning a habit. Like that's, I think the thing that I've, I've really, really thought about in, in taking that advice or, or framing things up in that way. It is a different way of thinking. You know, mm-hmm. when I, there were so many times where, you know, someone says, they say jump and you go, how high? And it's like, okay, but why are we jumping? And so, you know, some people are probably cringing right now being like, don't, don't ask that you're going to get in trouble. But at the same time, like you should actually, if if you're not clear on why you're jumping, you probably Mm -hmm. need to get clear on why you're jumping (laughs) so that you can have an effective jump to know how high you need to jump to accomplish said thing. That's right. Um, Yeah. That's super interesting. In addition to, to falling in love with the problem, which we just kind of covered, are there any other elements of product thinking that you think could give a competitive advantage to marketers with, with marketing being so noisy and competitive? Um, yeah. Is there, is there anything there that you think that sticks out that, that could, could give a competitive advantage to a marketer? It's mm. a great question. One element of product thinking that can, can definitely be a competitive advantage for marketers is embracing constraints to really figure out where you can get the most mileage out of your efforts. Mm-hmm. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but at times marketers can be hyper-focused on a given campaign. And mm-hmm. again, this is not a criticism. It's, it's really admirable to strive for the best possible activation and to 
you know, be, be so into both the big picture and the details of how you accomplish that. But not all opportunities are worth the same level of investment, be it money, time, or effort. Mm-hmm. And one of the most challenging things about being a product manager is we know we can't possibly deliver everything our customers ask for, or at least not right away. So you're the realist. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. The, one of the expressions, uh, another, you know, kind of reference statement is uh, a big part of your job is to say no. And mm-hmm. I don't think anyone likes that. We all want to say yes more than we say, say no, but there is really good value in saying no. Mm-hmm. And this is even more so actually in a startup environment. Um, you could always have more money to invest in the product. Your team is juggling a variety of responsibilities. There's never enough time. And to be able to effectively assess your options and ruthlessly prioritize, you do need to have a holistic view of what you're working with. Mm-hmm. So for me, this includes monitoring competitive intelligence, interpreting quantitative data, um, and, uh, and engaging with customers, which we'd love to talk more about a bit later. Mm-hmm. But in general, there's just this immense value in pausing to prioritize and where possible, experimenting with many small bets to maximize your learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we just discussed, iteration with the goal of learning is another key component of product. Yeah, it's it, one of the things that comes to mind, like I agree with everything that you said, one of the things that comes to mind for me is that this idea of creativity actually needing constraints. Mm. And, uh, you know, that. I find it very, very difficult when I don't have, so my background, sorry, I'll back up a sec here. So I used to work in the creative side of things doing photo and video, more so video. And when I didn't have a clear objective of what I needed to do, I found that very, very difficult because it was kind of like open white space. And I found that the most creative things actually need the constraints to provide the context because that's what makes it creative. So once you know, you know, as an audience, once you know what the limitation is and then someone does something amazingly creative, you need to understand those limitations for it to be perceived as creative. And now I, I feel like a bunch of creatives out there would probably disagree with me, but if we're, if we're kind of sticking in here with like creative for the sake of marketing, which, you know, if you work in a marketing department, I kind of coined it as like, art for the sake of commerce, commerce being the key word, you know, this, Mm -hmm. this creative side of things, I'm not saying don't be creative, but I'm thinking like some of the best work comes from like, here's, here's our, here's our sandbox. What can you do inside of it? And that's actually going to get more recognition or have more impact and be valued as more creative than if it's like, you can literally do whatever you want. Right. And I don't know if you disagree or uh, agree or disagree with that, but I just, I, I felt like that needed to be put out there. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've personally never worked on the creative side. So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, find it really difficult to imagine what that role and world looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have immense respect for creative individuals. I, yeah. I have a small creative side. I, I like to paint, I like to do photography, but I've, you know, never pursued it in anything more than a, than a casual way. Yeah. Um, when I had my first role in, in digital marketing, I, I remember this being something that I was really concerned with because I so deeply wanted to partner with the creative team um, and really add value for them mm-hmm. without overstepping, without you know them feeling like I was stifling or setting too, you know, too prescriptive of a direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah, I was self quite self-conscious in that in that first role of figuring out how could I add value. Um, and when I started focusing more on sharing you know, data points with the team and campaigns that had really worked for us in the past and problems that we were facing and um, objectives that I was after, at first I was I was concerned that I, that's what I, I'd be overstepping, um, that it would not be seen as value add, um, and you know, fortunately, I think I was working with an incredible group um, and they they really kind of echoed this back to me, saying, "Oh, the constraints are great, giving us a bit of this sandbox." Um, we, you know, we now have a better view of what we're after. Um, and you could see them start to create just this incredible work. Um, mm-hmm. So that was really kind of thrilling for, for me to be able to find a way to um, partner with, you know, a, a group of people that may think quite differently from me, but where we can really play off each other's strengths. 
Well, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's all about striking that balance, right? That balance between art and science within marketing, you need both, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you have to pull in both sides to be able to create, create something that's going to be, you know, meaningful, impactful, and give you the opportunity to influence someone to take an action that makes sense for your business. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I want to kind of talk about something that, uh, I want to talk about what you're excited about. And so, you know, I, I always find it interesting when I talk to smart people. Uh, I consider myself someone who is well-read. I'm constantly listening to podcasts, reading, watching videos, like doing all that stuff. And I have my own things that I get excited about. But I always get so curious when having people on here to ask them, what area in product or marketing sticks out to you that, that excites you the most? There's lots of areas that I'm excited about. I feel I feel this could be a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> I know it's a, a big question. Yeah, yeah. The future. One thing, if it wasn't obvious already from our conversation, I'm really excited by the increased attention to product marketing. Mm -hmm. It feels like this role is gaining momentum and respect. But as we discussed earlier, many companies still fail to bring product marketers in with the right skill set at the right time. And they end up paying for it in one way or another, sometimes with completely failed product launches. Mm -hmm. So because product marketing is a relatively new role, I think many companies don't know what it is or how it's different from marketing or growth marketing or digital marketing or brand marketing or product management, which is fair. I mean, e even I learned about those differentiations over years of mm -hmm. working in the various roles and having exposure to other, other people in those mm -hmm. capacities. And the product marketing gap can be even bigger at an early stage company or startup yeah. because most companies aren't hiring product marketing managers until they've reached some degree of scale. And I don't know by precision what this exactly is, but let's say over 50 employees. Mm -hmm. And Marty uh, Kagan, hopefully I said his last name right, uh, is a thought leader that I really, really admire on the product management side. Um, he's from the Silicon Valley group. Um, he's written so much incredible content and he has a great blog post on this topic specifically of the product marketing versus product management distinction. Hmm. And he argues that companies are sacrificing more than they realize. Uh, if no one at your company is performing the tasks of a product marketer, then you do run the risk of creating products that customers don't want or struggle to use. And in his article, he says ultimately that inflection point is usually reached because some person or a small team, be it either product management or marketing itself, um, becomes so overloaded that they can't scale. So the product marketer is then hired to help steer the ship and take some of the load off, not necessarily it be you know, a unique, distinct strategic function, but just huh. taking the load off of a, a marketer or a product manager. So like filling the gap. Really, yeah, exactly. Interesting, okay. Yeah. And uh, to add to this, I, I think sometimes there's this assumption that startups should have minimal gaps um, between the customers and the product based on this idea that there's inherent cohesion in small teams. So while there may be some truth to that, I, I definitely think it's easier to stay uh, connected and aligned when there's 20 of you in comparison to 20,000. Totally. Um, the stakes are just that much higher in the race towards product market fit as an early stage company. Yeah. Um, so for some of the entrepreneurs who, you know, might be listening to the, the podcast, this has been something that I've been thinking a lot about and I find it really fascinating. So to kind of tie it all back together, and I'm still forming my thoughts on this, and I think, um, you know, many people are, but if we revisit the primary goal of the product marketer, that being to deliver the right product to the target customer at the right time to ensure adoption, this focus maps almost directly to the value hypothesis created for or required for product market fit. Mm -hmm. um, so just to dig into what is a value hypothesis, I didn't come up with this one either. So citing <laughs> many smart people today, uh, smarter people. No, it's um, good. Uh, so uh, Andy Ratchcliffe, he was the C he is the CEO of Wealthfront, um, and he says a value hypothesis is this attempt to articulate the key assumption that underlies why a customer is likely to use your product. So this articulation of value to the customer is so critical to nail early on, and we need to revisit it often. What, what it is in you know, Q1 might be different than Q2 to Q3 to you know, years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and if you do this really well, you articulate that value to the right customer, um, customers actually start selling your product for you. And 
fundamentally, I think that's the, the space that we you know all want to be in um, is to, to have a product or a business that our customers uh, share and sell for us um, and really ultimate, spread the growth. Ultimate marketing or business, word of mouth, business growth, word of mouth marketing, like that is the the holy grail. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to see more of this role and the responsibilities and the product marketing thinking kind of come come to light and, and be more widely discussed. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you, you kind of said about touching on all the different titles, right? Like whether it's marketing, mm-hmm. growth marketing, digital marketing, brand marketing, like product management, like there's so many things that have been thrown out there. What like in terms of titles and like the label, do you think that that has contributed to some of like the blurriness and the confusion, it, like just around that idea of product marketing or product management? Yeah, potentially. I mean, it the the product marketing role in of itself is a combination of two other things Mm -hmm. product plus marketing um and there is some accuracy in that i believe it it functions across both so as as we talked about earlier um this this role or the responsibilities of this role has a really critical input to both product managers and marketing managers Mm -hmm. but there i think there i've even heard some interest in should this role be rebranded like is there is there a better name for it um Mm -hmm. is it should it fit into a different department there's a lot of discussion around what department do product marketers sit in do they should they sit in product management should they actually sit in a separate revenue department should they sit in a a growth department because fundamentally they're you know trying to help the the business find product market fit and scale um, and new markets and new market opportunities so it'll be interesting to see if you know the title or the words in the title change over time (laughs) in general i tend to not be someone that overly fusses about titles and I get more excited about um, the concepts behind mm-hmm. the, the roles and how do you apply those to various uh, disciplines, regardless of where, what background you're from. So even as we just discussed this idea of the problem space, like that, that's definitely important in product management, but it's, it's not something that you can benefit from in, in other roles. And I'm sure there's a lot in other roles that, you know, I could benefit from learning um, as well. So Totally. That good, makes good a lot question. Of sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think just trying to frame that up for, for people who are listening, right? Like I think that, you know, I, I'm not precious with titles either, but at the same time, like labels and structures are how most organizations function. That's right. And so, yeah, yeah it's one of those things where it's like, I don't care about, it, but I care about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's mm-hmm. like, personally, I don't care about it, but like functionally for the business, it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Interesting. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here and I want to talk about data and insights. My favorite. Yes. <laughs> not, yes. not my favorite. I used to be a, a filmmaker back in the day. So I, I do have the create, I used to have the creative aspects, I guess maybe, but I want to talk about how data and insights play into your approach approach. And, you know, as someone who's responsible for growth, i.e. both product and marketing, how have you used data and insights in the past to understand customers or users and, and taking it a step further to build better products, services, or experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, on this subject, I, I always start with a, a passion for a shared sense of data literacy within a team or a company. So if you happen to come from a background of product management or digital marketing, odds are you have a pretty ingrained habit of looking at metrics on a daily basis and using those to guide your decisions. But a big part of your job in either of those areas is selling stakeholders or your very own team on opportunities worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. And it's just so much easier to get buy-in and solicit a variety of ideas when the numbers you're speaking about are not totally foreign or brand new to other individuals. And mm-hmm. it, this also serves to take a lot of the emotion out of decision-making when we have a common common ground. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think about this idea of, you know, democratizing access or making data or insights more approachable. Yeah, Um, exactly. And I I feel like that's something that a lot of businesses need. I mean, whether it's, whether it's me and my, in my previous experience working with other, other people or working with our clients today, it's, it's data and insights. I feel like, you know, data is such a, it's a data and analytics is such a buzzword Mm -hmm. that's been like thrown around, but at the same time, like it's, it's kind of gained this momentum, but I also feel like there is still a lot of, intimidation around it because I feel like some people and, and, you know, I was kind of the same before I got close to it as I was like, Oh, like 
I wasn't good at math in high school or like, you know, I don't know, like kind of stay away. But at the same time, I was like, oh, this, you know, this idea of data storytelling and understanding the story behind the numbers um, and the insights behind the numbers that can then be taken and applied and packaged up um, is, is really, really not only interesting, but also super valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, it's, it's so powerful and it can certainly be incredibly overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the role of anyone who is familiar with data and comfortable with it is to spread that knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. Don't, don't make it something that's locked away and that only you understand and you know, you get frustrated if other people don't, don't get it. Like it's part of your job to, mm-hmm. to share that, that um, access in a way yeah. that's digestible and, and familiar. That's and a totally. separate skill. I feel like right there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Data translator. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there you go. There's a new job title for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And I, 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 one thing I found really, well, to be very fortunate in my career at many of the previous companies I've worked at, there's been a practice of this cross-functional daily metric standup where you've received highlights from each area. Mm-hmm. And what's great about this is it really forces each team lead to keep it snappy by bubbling up those metrics that matter. Um, so when we work together, for example, well, I didn't run social media and that's your area of expertise. Um, I probably could have rattled off your week over week growth and engagement or followers and recalled your top performing posts. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you could have done the same for the areas that I was working in uh, around e-commerce channel mix or conversion rate um, on the website. Mm-hmm. And it may be tempting to argue that this doesn't matter in context of the job of a product manager. Why bother yourself with more metrics outside of your immediate domain? But I would argue it is really important. Social media gives you insight into customer preferences that can be leveraged in product decisions. Mm -hmm. And if you, as the social media manager, entice customers to shop, then they come to retail stores or they come to uh, the website or the product. and that's where product management now comes in and has to ensure that they properly, you know, drive that, that traffic into meaningful locations and, and convert it to purchases mm-hmm. um, and keep happy customers. So what's really cool about this, this idea, as you said, about kind of democratizing data and having a shared understanding is when you and I worked together, we, we were able to help each other maximize performance of our respective areas by having that shared sense of data and insight. So even if it was outside of my immediate scope, um, we could have a conversation and I could give you an idea or a problem that I was seeing um, on the website and we could run with that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah, well, one of, one of the things that, that just came to mind as, as you were saying that was this idea of, well, not idea, it's, it's more, you know, okay, if, if I, I think about the analogy that I would use is like your peripheral vision. Right. So mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. yes, me in social, I am focused on social. That doesn't mean that like I'm complete. I still have things in my periphery that I can look at and and understand, i.e. e-commerce channel mix, conversion, whatever the, the thing is. And then to take that a step further is like one, just don't ignore it because you have peripheral vision for a reason. Mm-hmm. And then and then two is all of those things that we're just talking about are, are little signals that add up to give you a more complete picture of what's happening, which inform you to hopefully be able to make a better decision for your area of the business, whether it's social e-com marketing as a whole, whatever it is. Yeah. And exactly. so it, it, it's kind of, it, it may seem kind of foreign because it's like, it's, you know, if I'm a social media manager or if I'm an e-commerce marketing manager, you might be being like, well, yeah, I have enough to worry about in my own area. Sure. Mm-hmm. Like I don't disagree with that, but at the same time, there are things that can be learned through that kind of, you know, peripheral vision, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to tie this back to the question that you asked at the beginning where you said, how do you use data and insights to build better products or experiences? Mm -hmm. So as we touched on earlier, focusing on those data and insights really helps us remain in the problem space. And I've called myself a few times recently discussing details of a bug or a feature um, without providing relative context to the team. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, getting, getting caught up in a solution and really going down that road and realizing I just completely skipped my role in providing that relevant context. Um, And by relevant context, I mean questions like how often is this happening and when is this happening? And is this more impactful to a specific customer segment? And why does it matter to our customer or to our business? Why have we chosen to prioritize this now? 
the job of a leader is not to dictate what products or experiences are to be built, but really rather to help prioritize, guide, and give feedback on the process based on the data and insights. Huh. Really, really interesting. So it's almost kind of like you using data to help establish like where my mind initially went was like Ray Dalio's principles. And it's like using data and insights to establish a set of principles in which you then use to help make decisions around products, experiences, services, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, huh. exactly. Okay. I have a follow-up question to that. So, okay. you know, as, <laughs> as we've been talking about, there's no shortage of data available to marketers. How do you approach choosing which things to pay attention to and which to ignore, right? There's been a ton of conversation around vanity metrics within mm-hmm. marketing. This kind of ties nicely to the name of the podcast, Measure What Matters, but mm-hmm. how, how do you pay attention or focus your attention on, on what to look at and, and what to kind of ignore? I'm going to take a, I think, slightly different approach in my answer, which is <laughs> to say that regardless of the size of your company, you, you simply cannot ignore your customers. And Typically, when we talk about data, we think solely about quantitative numbers, Mm -hmm. about hard numbers. Um, And we really can't forget that behind that data are real people. Mm -hmm. So falling in love with the problem means you have to relish in rather than ignore the sticky points in your data and obsess over customers who care enough to give you feedback, even if that feedback is, is negative. Totally. And this is, again, this is... I find myself getting sometimes oddly excited about problems I see in the data <laughs> when I, you know, it, it's, it's this mix of anxiety and you see something that isn't maybe moving the right direction. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's some excitement in that because, okay, great. I'm seeing it now. Um, I see customers behind that data who are potentially having that friction or challenge um, and I can help them or I'm at yeah. least starting to move towards helping them. Um, But it's worth noting that this customer obsession can go sideways if we focus all of our energy on serving unique problems for for a specific customer. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a big client and, you know, it becomes just only about them. Um, Or we become so overwhelmed by the variety of feedback that we default back to going with our gut. Mm -hmm. And this is especially tricky in a startup where you have a limited information to work with. For sure. So in in either case, I try to refer back to the vision and our key performance indicators for guidance. The devil is often in the details, but it's so easy to get lost there. Yeah. So you need to strike that difficult balance in paying attention to feedback without losing sight of the big picture objectives. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the thing that I I would add also is like when, when you're looking at data is number one, I relate, like when I say data in my head, I just think behavior. Mm. And so like, mm-hmm. and, and this is probably going to be a really bad example or analogy is like, I think of almost the data points as checkpoints. So I think about like a ski racer going down a slope and every time they pass a gate, right, that's a checkpoint. And so that's kind of how I think about data is, is I'm like, oh, okay, they did that just because this is a quantitative thing. There is a qualitative behavior that we are interpreting it interpreting in a quantitative number Mm -hmm. and that quantitative number does have a qualitative meaning. And then, yeah, what is that qualitative meaning that we can understand uh, our customer behavior? So I think that's a really good thing that you said is like framing that up as like, yeah, we all say data, data, data. And I think more people go math. Whereas like to me, data is actually just like behavior of humans. Yes. It's taking place on a digital device, but it's really the language behind behavior. Yeah, I think um, I think you have an infographic in that one. Just don't look at my handwriting because it is so <laughs> bad. If I had to draw that, that would not be good. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's that's interesting there. So that's that's like the first piece is that, that what I thought about and after kind of listening to you you talk about that. And then the second thing was, you know, as as people in marketing we have so much access to data. And, you know, I feel like a few years ago was when this phrase like big data really kind of came onto the block and, mm-hmm. and the size of data is incredible. Like it's never been better to be a marketer from, from a data perspective. And I'll take that a step further to what I just said. It's never been better for marketers to understand behavior because that data is, you know, associated with behaviors, but with having access to that much data, Yes, it's great because you can zoom into things and zoom out of things. But I think what you said about like, it can be 
you know, you kind of have to check yourself because it can trick you if you like go down too far and kind of remaining that high level and, and looking for trends, looking for anomalies, looking for th at things over a period of time. Um, I find that's something that that we've had to work with on our t with our team and, and with various customers and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, do you, you agree or disagree with that? Hundred percent agree. Um, yeah, exactly. It's it's this it's this that fine balance between listening to the customers, listening to that individualized one-on-one -on -one feedback, mm -hmm. being responsive to it. I think all the companies that you know we admire, you see the the, the CEO responding to messages on Twitter or yeah. responding on LinkedIn or sending an email back or picking up the phone. Like those are high touch activities and are absolutely critical and you can't neglect them, but you also have to find a way to to work that feedback into, you know, a bigger picture perspective of what you're trying to accomplish and yeah, what's, what's going on in the, in the larger market. So how do you make decisions on what to action and, and what to ignore? Absolutely. And so speaking of brands, this, this works perfectly into the kind of next question that I had here. We've seen both some good things and some not so good things from brands during this time. Is there anything that has stood out to you from a brand in terms of, in terms of marketing? Oh, we feel, this is a great one. We could talk about this all day. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it's an incredibly difficult time. As we all know, the news cycle has been so overwhelming mm -hmm. and it is always difficult to cut through the noise, but it doesn't feel like ever more so than now. On one of your previous episodes, I heard Andrew Delaney from HubSpot. He said that the immediate change for, for his team and company was to cut back in the short term to avoid coming across as insensitive and causing long-term damage to the brand. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an incredibly smart way to prioritize in a crisis. Um, Andrew's a smart guy. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And this was a this was a first for for me to to kind of go through something like this, as, yeah. as I'm sure it is for for many um, you know marketers in the world. And our company did something similar. You know, we took a moment to pause. We discussed all the potential ways in which COVID nineteen might impact our world and the world for our potential customers. Mm -hmm. and this is not just a business exercise, but it's an exercise in empathy. Yeah. People are facing major life-changing situations, including job loss, isolation, illness, or death. Yeah. Um, and these challenges are not about to go away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I, I think the brands that have stood out in this time have found a way to be helpful or relatable. Um, they've been able to offer something truly meaningful to people in a way that felt authentic. I've also seen brands, uh, I'm curious if you've seen this one as well, but brands experiment with new emotions that maybe were not so prevalent previously, but mm -hmm. now really unify us. Uh, so one example is uh, Tangerine recently put out an ad, and I believe the tagline is, again, as the campaign. And it's this, this really simple scenes of life as we knew it before COVID-19. So people just going about their day, and it's, it's covered by statements such as, take the bus again, lose our voices again, double dip again. Um, and it taps right into those feelings of longing and yeah. kind of hope that we have. They tie it back to their company. I was wondering as I was watching it, where, how are they going to tie this back? Where are they where going with going? this? Well, and, and I did, you didn't even know who it was from at first. But they tie it back to their business by saying, we will help you save so you can do it all again. Mm -hmm. And Tangerine's and, a financial institution, just to clarify that, yeah? Right, yeah. yes, exactly. Cool. Um, so this really stood out to me because most financial institutions have been well, up to kind of before this yeah. this major change in our world, we're typically speaking about long-term savings, you know, major life events like college or retirement. Um, but Tangerine was able to find this larger shared emotion, mm -hmm. recognizing people might not have a ton of extra income currently. And they were able to position themselves as a company that cares to help people save even small amounts um, for these previously mundane, yet we all know like truly meaningful events that we mm -hmm. have in our lives. Yeah. Um, so I, I just thought that was a kind of a great example of something that that stood out and, you know, maybe was something that they never would have done before and a new yeah. emotion that they were able to tap into. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a really good example. It's been fascinating to see how how different brands have have brought certain things to life or or not. Right. Like some mm -hmm. some have gone quiet and, you know, every brand has different different things that are behind the scenes that we can't necessarily see. But, um, yeah, that was one that. I think is super interesting and, and inspiring. Yeah. And another inspiring trend, I guess you could say I've seen is the increased transparency from leadership and yeah. it, this behavior that was previously behind the scenes within companies has now become as important as their public facing personas. 
Yep. So I'm, I'm sure you've seen the list of brands that have been circulating that deserve our loyalty in the months yeah. to come based on how they've treated their employees or the service that they've given back to their communities. And we've seen even just more storytelling. So one example from Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack, um, he posted this amazing Twitter thread in March about yeah. his company's transition to work from home, the rapid growth of Slack as many companies did the same. Yeah. Can I just uh, say like, this was a gangster like display (laughs) of just like, here's an unfiltered view into what real leaders do. Yeah. Like I, I remember like, I think I was, I, I saw, I, I I got onto Twitter like halfway through as he was still uploading stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is happening? And I couldn't believe the level of detail. It, It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was strategic. It was empathetic. It was candid. And I think as, as followers of his on, on Twitter or as mm-hmm. you know, believers in the company that is Slack, um, we've really got a glimpse into the values and cultures, mm-hmm. the culture behind the scenes, which yeah. I think has this amazing impact of driving even more brand loyalty. Um, mm-hmm. Though I, I do truly just think he was being authentic and, yeah. and sharing his experiences um, yeah. and allowing us to all kind of lean in and, and learn from what he was going through. Which again is a skill, like that's not easy to do. Like, I feel like that doesn't come naturally to people, right? Especially in a business context where it's like, oh, you know, we have to be strategic and, and maybe confident and confidential and, and these types of things. So it's interesting to see how that's kind of shifted and or pivoted to default transparency. Boom. Here's what we're doing. Here's why. Yeah. And I think it's more than just transparency. It's also, it's only effective if you've had these deeply rooted company values or core, mm-hmm. core values that you can lean on. And I think that is, the, is that that is a root of authenticity, right? It's, they're not manufactured. It's not, it's not just for show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's based on something longer term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another example we saw recently came from Brian Chesky, uh, the CEO of Airbnb. And on the day the company laid off 25% of the workforce, they, you know, published online for all of us to read and follow along mm-hmm. uh, the principles behind their reduction decisions their comp packages, the transition planning. And Obviously, it was an incredibly difficult time for the company, but they were able to showcase that they've tied, they were tying decisions back to the original mission of the company. And I think regardless of your personal beliefs towards Airbnb, whether you think they're you know good for the world or, or not, they have handled the adversity well for a company that's just been truly in the center of yeah. the impact. Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think this is thought leadership at its finest. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, this word thought leadership has kind of been thrown around and, and, oh, like I'm writing a thought leadership article. I'm writing, you know, like that sort of thing. What does it actually look like? I think this is what it looks like, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's an unfiltered look into, uh, you know, how these leaders are dealing with unprecedented challenges that they there's no way they could have really prepared for. Um, they're doing so in real time, taking into consideration so many different factors. And one of the things that just came off of my mind, which I thought was actually a really good strategy was um, it reminded me of the movie eight mile Eminem. And in the, <laughs> I know I'm going to go, this is, I promise I'll bring this back. Okay. Okay. I'm waiting. <laughs> what, I, what I mean here is, in the last rap battle, Eminem is, is rapping against this guy and he has to go first. And part of it is, you know, him going first, what he does is he actually makes fun of himself the whole time so that by the time it's the other guy's turn to rap and kind of make fun of him, he has no ammunition because Eminem has already said everything about himself and he's kind of already made the jokes. And I think like, this is why relating that back to this thought leadership stuff and this, you know, transparency and, and, you know, leading into the values and publicizing it and that sort of thing is with Stuart's tweet storm or Brian's announcement, you were able to understand the thought process and the information they had available at the time, which led to their decisions. Right. right? Whereas previously, like, you know, it might be a press release from like Mm -hmm. a comms person that like comes out and it's like, we're doing this, blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of like this, this manufactured thing. Whereas, you know, being able to kind of explain the why behind the decision and not necessarily just communicating that why to the internal employees, communicating that why publicly leaves a lot of like answers, a lot of the questions. So people are like, okay, well with all of that considered, that actually makes sense. Now, sometimes that happens where some people are still like, nah, that doesn't make sense to me, but like, it is what it is. But I think, you know, 
it's almost like they're able to kind of cover their butt by eight miling themselves <laughs> using air quotes here <laughs> to kind of put it in that way. And so I think this is a trend that's, that's going to probably continue because I think that like, this is now going to become the expectation. What do you think about that? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hope so. I, I think mm -hmm. that it's, I think that it's great to, we've all known for a long time how much an internal company's culture or values, the way they operate matters to the long-term success of a company. It matters to um, how happy their customers are if their employees are happy. Mm. And now more than ever, I think you're seeing those companies shine, right? Mm. And even again, even in really challenging times where maybe the numbers on the surface don't look positive, right? Um, layoffs yeah. or revenue, but I think there's something to be said for if, if people leave that company can still prefer that company and still think back wisely of their time there or fondly of their time there and still want to use the products, still want to refer the products. I mean, isn't that's, a, that's immensely powerful. And I think it's better for the world to have a more transparent and deeper connection between what goes on behind the scenes and behind closed doors to what actually is shown to the public. I couldn't agree more. One of the things I want to switch gears here a little bit is uh, I, I said earlier that I, I considered myself fairly uh, well-read and well-listened and, mm -hmm. and that sort of things. I spent a ton of time reading and watching videos and listening to things. Um, with product and marketing changing at such a rapid pace, how do you stay up to date? Who are you following? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Uh, I'd, I'd love to give me, give me your secrets. Give me who you listen to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, on the daily, I, I do kind of the major catch-up. So Medium, Twitter, various blogs I've bookmarked. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a bit of a news junkie as well. So I am I have a ton of appreciation for really well-researched and thoughtful writing. Mm -hmm. And I never miss an episode of Pivot, the podcast. Mm -hmm. I, I think we both have that in common. Love uh, Swisher. Yeah, love the cat and the dog. Yeah. So good. <laughs> but beyond the daily digest, I mean, I think it's really important to have a couple of key resources to refer back to again and again. And I, I find myself doing that. So yes, I have the daily things that I read, but if I was to kind of recommend things to others, it would be to find those strategic frameworks that you can experiment with over time because mm -hmm. it, it, it certainly takes a while to absorb big ideas and put yeah. them into practice. Yeah. So a couple I'll mention, um, I couldn't speak about product marketing without mentioning April Dunford. You talked about her earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, her book, obviously awesome came out a year ago, but it's worth several rereads. Mm -hmm. She's an excellent storyteller and shares compelling cases of transforming products simply by changes in the context. Mm -hmm. And she lays out a concise and practical framework for building positioning. She's, um, she's brilliant. I, yeah, April, if you're so listening, good. I want to get you on the podcast. <laughs> she's, she is, I, yeah, her book fundamentally changed the way that I approach positioning and, and marketing. So I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I also love from a product management perspective, um, the product leadership and strategy content that comes from Gibson Biddle, mm -hmm. who's the former VP of product for Netflix. And mm -hmm. I've been fortunate to have seen him speak at a variety of conferences. If you get the chance to see him speak, definitely don't miss it. Mm -hmm. um, but he has several essays on his website that include a phenomenal 12-part series on product strategy. So I've been working my way through those. And every time I find a new aha moment, uh, each, <laughs> each iteration, <laughs> each, each read and application. Yeah, interesting. Essays. Yeah, that's a new one. I haven't really, like, I'll, I'll read the longer the longer, you know, blog posts and that sort of thing. But, but essays is a, is a new format that I haven't really dove into. Yeah. Well, they're, con they're super consumable. So don't let that, that put you off. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you can handle it. Charlie. That's Thank the, that's know. the, that's the bad student in me, the, the crappy <laughs> high school student being like, Ooh, reading. But I mean, I guess that's the thing, right? Like it's so funny that word essay, the, the hair on my neck stood up being like, you don't like essays. Whereas at the same time, like I will crush newspapers and exactly, blogs, exactly. Like sort of thing. So it's so funny how framing it in that way. Yeah. Um, Okay, as, as we start to wind this, this down a little bit, do you have any advice that marketers should be just keeping top of mind? I think like we've obviously covered a lot here uh, in this conversation, but what's the one thing that you think marketers should be, be taking away and keeping talk, top of mind? Mm -hmm. I think you always want to ensure that you have clear business goals and tie those goals back or have the ability to tie them back to a solid strategic foundation. Mm -hmm. it, 
And if you don't have what you need to be successful, as we, we mentioned earlier or discussed, it's okay to stop and ask those hard questions. It, mm-hmm. it can feel challenging. I think sometimes it can feel like, well, are you, are you pushing back? Are you making objections for objections sake? But you will empower so many others around you once you're all working from the same playbook. Mm-hmm. So have clear business goals and have a solid strategic foundation and enroll anyone you need uh, to, to get you there. That makes a ton of sense to me. Where's the best place for people to find you online? Well, you can reach me on LinkedIn anytime. I'm also in a bunch of Slack communities for product management and product marketing. I do really love Slack because it has allowed me to connect with people far beyond my immediate network. I had two phone calls this morning that started off with Slack conversations. It's allowed me to build relationships where we can just bounce ideas off each other anytime. So feel free to say hello to me on LinkedIn and then we can take the conversation from there. That sounds great. Well, Britt, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I always learn something when I speak with you about this sort of thing and, and today was no difference. So thank you very much. And, and I'm excited to watch what you guys continue to build over at Kinzu. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Charlie.